0: You are listening to episode 33 of the Tennis Files podcast with special
1: guest, Dr. Mark Kovacs. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad.
0: Hey guys, I hope everybody has been well since the last episode. Uh, I have been actually out sick uh, with a cold uh, for the past uh, week or so, but I am back with a vengeance and with a very well-respected and amazing guest in Dr. Mark Kovac's um, he is just an expert in the field of sports science and tennis fitness. And he's trained so many elite athletes uh, around the world in so many different sports. Um, and there's really, you know, not much else to say. I just want to get into the content and get you guys pumped and ready to take your game to the next level by taking your fitness to the next level. So, without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Mark Kovacs everybody. Welcome to episode 33 of the Tennis Files podcast. And today it is really my great honor to speak with Dr. Mark Kovacs. Uh, Mark is a world renowned sports science and fitness expert who has trained numerous top professional tennis players and other athletes, including John Isner, Sloan Stevens, Sam Query, Donald Young, and Melanie O'Dean. Uh, in 2015, uh, Stack named Mark one of the top 31 fitness professionals to follow. And Mark is a performance physiologist, researcher, professor, author, speaker, and coach with just uh, an amazing background in uh, in sports science. And he's been featured in many of the biggest sports and news publications, including ESPN, The New York Times, and Tennis Magazine. And Mark was also a very good player himself. Uh, he played college tennis at Auburn and uh, achieved a world ranking on the ATP Tour. Um, and Mark is here with us today to talk about tennis fitness. And uh, his new book that came out uh, that he co-authored uh, with a couple other fitness experts called Complete Conditioning for Tennis, uh, the second edition. Uh, Mark, uh, again, it's it's truly an honor and I want to welcome you to the uh, podcast today.
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much for the nice introduction and really excited to be on with you. you know, I, I love talking about this topic of conditioning and fitness for tennis. So Really excited to be here and looking forward to discussing some really interesting topics.
0: Uh, thanks so much, Mark. Uh, Mark, it's kind of interesting. I first heard about you when I, uh, purchased a course from, uh, Will from, uh, Fuzzy Yellow Balls. And it was a, uh, I believe a kinetic chain, uh, course, which was actually very helpful in understanding, uh, you know, the weight transfer and the importance of the kinetic chain. And, uh, from there, you know, I've, I've read your articles and you actually have a staggering amount of articles on, uh, on PubMed, which are all really great. Um, but again, you know, thanks so much for being on the show and uh I just want to start off by asking you you know you you're obviously a world renowned fitness and sports performance expert, but how did you get to where you are today?
2: That's a really, really good question because uh I started as an athlete like a lot of people that get into the area of sports science and sports performance. uh, the only thing I ever wanted to do was be a tennis player uh I grew up in Australia, played. Uh, a few junior Grand slams played a lot on the ITF junior circuit and then you know came to Auburn and uh, played there was looking to be a professional tennis player and had some injury issues uh, along the way and that's really what got me into this whole area of sports science and sports performance. I wanted to better understand myself and what was happening with my injuries and you know, this was 20 years ago now, so the, the field has completely changed and, you know, it, we, we know a lot more, we can prevent a lot more, we can train a lot smarter, and it really got me into that whole field of why do things happen the way they do and what can we do to make sure that the athletes get the attention they need, train the right way, and, you know, it really comes down to improving your performance, reducing your likelihood of injury all under a, a framework of train hard and recover hard.
0: Oh, well, that's beautiful. I mean, I you know, what I really appreciate and what I've noticed in your book uh, that's a big emphasis uh, is, is the, uh, you know, the not, not the cookie-cutter approach. You know, every single athlete has different uh, weaknesses and strengths, and it, it's really important, as you mentioned, to, uh, you know, really analyze the, the athlete and figure out what they need to improve upon. And, um, you know, in looking at your just, you know, amazing record and, and, uh, you know, you have a lot of degrees and certifications. There's so many letters uh, on here next to your name. And I actually wanted to ask you, uh, you know, what, uh, degrees and certifications do you have?
2: Sure. So You know, I I started in the field as a strength and conditioning uh, professional working, that's a certified strength and conditioning specialist through the National Strength and Conditioning Association. Uh, And that's really to work with uh, competitive athletes, not a tennis related uh, program at all. I actually started working with NFL athletes in pre-draft combine Mm -hmm. and uh, baseball athletes were the two major ones. Uh, And So that's an area that, you know, I still spend a lot of time working with individual athletes, you know, on the field, on the court, in the weight room, things like that. Uh, And then also went and did my academic training. So I have a master's degree in exercise science, which is a combination of biomechanics and physiology, and then I did my PhD in physiology. So, you know, that's from an academic perspective. Uh, and then we started a, a association about four years ago called the International Tennis Performance Association, uh, and that educates and certifies individuals that work with tennis athletes, uh, from tennis coaches all the way to physical therapists, medical doctors, chiropractors, strength and conditioning professionals. Uh, and, you know, so I'm, I'm certified through the, the International Tennis Performance Association as well. Uh, so that's sort of my background from uh certifications and an education background, but you know a, a big part of it is really combining that information and that knowledge uh, with the practical application and working under some great coaches, some great scientists over the last couple decades and really applying it the best I can with the athletes that we work with, the coaches we work with um, and the different associations and high performing teams.
0: Wow Mark well I mean the breadth of knowledge that you have over, Uh, You know, the very complex, uh, you know, facets of sports science is uh, is truly staggering. And and we all are are aware of um, all your accomplishments. But I actually want to do want to ask you, uh, what's one thing about you that most of the world doesn't know?
2: It's a really good question. There's probably (laughs) a lot of things people don't know know about me. Uh, You know, I I definitely can't sing. Uh, (laughs) I don't dance very well. Uh, So those two things for sure. Uh, yeah, I'm learning to play golf. I'm trying to get a little better at that. So those are three things there that most people don't know uh, about me. So th- that's one of those questions where I could probably name off 10 or 20, but that's three to get you started.
0: Well, that's pretty good, Mark. I'm sure if you practice hard at those, you'd be a pretty elite, uh, singer and such. Uh, but Mark so now uh just uh, to get into you know the the content that everybody is just really excited to hear you know we have seen uh, a lot of uh questions posted when I announced that I was going to interview you and uh, I'm so excited as well but um so in your book uh the complete conditioning uh sorry complete conditioning for tennis second edition Um, You know, the first chapter you talk about uh, several elements of tennis fitness and obviously tennis is really uh, in some uh, respects like underappreciated for all the different skills that people uh, that's required of the players. So can you talk about the different elements of tennis fitness that's required?
2: Sure. I mean, I think it's like most sports that uh, require a, a multitude of physical capabilities. know we need the flexibility you need the strength and power you need the agility and movement you need the endurance to last the long matches you need dynamic balance so these are all factors that really come into being a proficient athlete first and foremost uh, and then a tennis player second and unfortunately many people are so focused on the tennis side of it hitting tennis balls that sometimes they don't develop their physical capabilities well enough and we see that at every level of the game, that if your physical capabilities aren't optimized, you may have great strokes, but if you can't get to the ball, if you can't recover from wide balls, and if you don't have that fitness for the long term, you know you can't compete at your highest level for three or four hours that you may have to in some matches. So it's really, really important to look at yourself as a tennis athlete and make sure that you don't have major limitations in your uh, physical capabilities, and that's an area that definitely can be worked on. You can really do a good analysis to understand where you're at today and then what areas you need to work on.
0: Well, Mark, I really appreciate you highlighting uh, just how critical tennis fitness is for um, the success of tennis players. I know myself, um whenever I'm at, I'm at my uh, peak physical condition, that's when I'm playing the best, and obviously. I mean, well, it helps every player, but especially those who are, for example, baseliners who grind at points. I mean, fitness is just paramount. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different elements uh, that you mentioned. And sometimes I feel that players get overwhelmed as far as what they should be addressing. So how would you prioritize and address uh, the different elements of tennis fitness when we're trying to plan out our training?
2: Sure. So it's a really, really good question. And everyone's at a different stage of their tennis development. Mm-hmm. At younger ages, there's certain things you want to focus on more. At older ages, there's things you really need to prioritize. Uh, you know, the the thing with most tennis players are from a speed, power, uh, strength perspective, a lot of that is based at the foundation on your strength level. So you need to make sure that you are doing some form of strength training that's really the foundation for a lot of other physical capabilities. So strength is one component that needs to be a priority. The other is your endurance. You've got to make sure that you can last a match because we know plenty of players that are great in the first set, but by the third set, they got nothing left in the tank. So strength on one end of the spectrum, endurance on the other. And then the third big piece is this flexibility slash mobility area, which you got to have the right range of motion. You've got to be able to get into the right positions correctly so that you can really utilize the energy appropriately, meaning that the energy from the ground up through your entire kinetic chain out into the ball. And that's where the great players, the efficient athletes do a great job and they get injured less typically. Uh, and they're individuals that are less efficient. They're always using the wrong body parts to create their power they're adjusting at the last minute to make contact with the ball. Those are the play, players that typically have more issues in the long run.
0: Right. Uh, that's fantastic. I mean, I remember seeing a picture of uh, Tommy Paul in, in the uh, book uh, that we're talking about, Complete Conditioning for Tennis, and uh, just a beautiful balance that he has at the end of the stroke, and that's uh, that attributes to his physical fitness and balance and flexibility and everything. Uh you know rolled into one uh in your view mark and in, in your experience which one of the fitness elements that you've uh, explained to us is most lacking in the majority of amateur tennis players
2: so w- when we're talking amateur tennis players and more sort of adult amateur tennis players mm. a lot of what you see as a limitation is general um body strength not necessarily absolute strength not how much can you lift one time, but the ability to sort of repeat that movement. So muscular endurance strength is really one of the areas where we see a lot of people are lacking, meaning that when I ask someone to do a single leg squat, for example, many of them really struggle to be able to, you know, put weight through their hip and through their lower limbs without collapsing or falling one way or the other. And that's a really, really important factor because a lot of what happens on a ground-based sport like tennis is is all the energy comes through the lower body, through the hips, and if the hips and the core region is not strong and stable, doesn't have that stability, we lose energy, but then we also have to recruit other muscles to allow us to make contact with the ball. And that's where we see a lot of the problems stem from. So if you had to name one area... It would be, you know, really developing good muscular endurance. Sometimes people will call this uh, stability, uh, the ability to stabilize in these positions effectively. So we want to make sure we've got stability with muscular endurance.
0: That's fantastic. And so, you know, regarding tennis musculature, um, you know, you discuss in depth uh, the physical demands of the game and the muscles used in tennis. And I'm curious also, uh, what is one critical muscle group that tennis players tend to ignore and under-train?
2: Yeah, it's a great, great question. I mean, we used to say it was the core, the core mm-hmm. region. I think a lot of people now understand that, that that's really, really important. So a lot more people are now training the entire core region. Uh, still, sometimes they're doing it with the wrong exercises or doing it the wrong way and recruiting the wrong groups of muscles. But that area, at least, is more of a focus. Uh, one area that doesn't get enough attention is the lower limb, so the calf all the way down to the ankle, because that's really your last major muscle groups and then the last major joint before ground contact. And we know that everything that we can get energy-wise into the ball comes from the ground. So if we have a weak link at the ankle and through the calf, then everything further up the chain is limited. So, really emphasize that ability to have good range of motion throughout the calf muscles, uh, have good stability through the ankles, uh, and then really be able to generate enough force through that that we can transfer up through the body and out into the ball. So, you know, one of the areas that we see is quite limited in most tennis players and it's not a major focus is that calf through the ankle area, especially in the amateur adult players.
0: And so. With that, what is perhaps one exercise that we can implement right now um, to strengthen that area?
2: So there's really a couple good ones for the calf. I mean, one you want to make sure you stretch it out daily. Uh, calves oh. tighten up. Most players' calf muscles are rather tight, so we want to be doing calf stretching. Most people are familiar with the the most common ones. You know, you can push against a wall and lean forward, and that'll stretch your calf. You can put your foot up against a wall uh, and then lean your body forward, stretching out your calf muscles. So that's two stretches that are really, really beneficial. Uh, And then the other area is really doing, you know, body weight squats is really good. That does more than just the calves. But if you do body weight squats on a regular basis and try to get lower each day, it's going to help give you some strength down in the lower limbs, not only the calves, but also the hips as well. And that can really be advantageous to individuals that are using their legs a lot when they play tennis. They're on, on court for multiple hours, and you've got to have your engine, which is your legs, working you know at, at a good clip on a regular basis, and you need to train that effectively.
0: Fantastic. And I know that you, uh, amazingly, this, this uh, book that you co-authored has you know, about 56 videos in it explaining uh, you know most of the critical exercises uh, that you mentioned, but you meant you also uh, said that we should try to be going a uh, lower each time we squat. And I was curious, you know, there's different, um, I guess, philosophies on how low we should go. But are we talking parallel or maybe lower than that?
2: Yeah, really good question. Because most individuals struggle to get very low, especially the older you get, the stiffer you become in general, unless you're doing structured flexibility and mobility training. Uh, you know, a while back, there was a big, um, you know, advice to, for most people to not go below parallel. It would put more pressure on your knees. And that's what a lot of people thought. And if it's done correctly, that's not necessarily true. But unfortunately, a lot of people are very stiff and very tight. So in general, you want to make sure that you get to parallel. That's goal number one. And then if you're planning on trying to get below parallel, it's not necessarily a negative. I do that with a lot of the, nearly all the athletes I work with. I get below parallel, but it's under control and it's with correct technique. The challenge is the moment you get below parallel, things start to change in your posture, especially at the lower lumbar spine area. And if you don't know what you're doing in that position – you will sort of cheat to get that extra range, and that's not what we want. So that's why, in general, if you're working out by yourself, if you don't have a trained person who's working with you, helping you on technique, you want to be, play it safe on that, and you know just go to parallel. But if you are working with a trained person who knows what they're doing, going below parallel is actually really beneficial because we're, when we're on a tennis court, we have to get ourselves in all sorts of positions we're lunging, we're sliding, we're getting below the height of the ball, you know, so we need to be trained in all those type of movements that we may experience on a tennis court.
0: uh, I appreciate that information. I I just love uh, squats are one of my favorite exercises. I can't help but ask you these two quick follow-up questions. Uh, One is, you know, there's the high bar squat and the low bar squat, I guess, primarily, and there's also overhead squat as well. I mean, is there, you know, one in particular that you would favor over all the others, or is it, you know, we just use all of them uh, at different points in our training?
2: Yeah. So there's a lot of squat variations, you know, where you position the bar is one aspect where you position your arms, whether you, you know, whether you go a wide grip, a narrow grip on the squat, uh, the, the, whether you do a front squat or a back squat, uh, whether you go an overhead squat, whether you then change it up with dumbbells or with um, kettlebells or goblets, there's all sorts of variations to perform a squat movement. The, the, the question that you have to ask yourself is, what's the safest version for me based on my body shape, based on any limitations I, I may have? So, you know, barbell squatting is great if the athlete has stability, has good technique, has the ability to get in the right positions. However, many tennis players, especially adult tennis players, barbell squatting may not be the preferred model. It may be a form of dumbbell squatting, band squatting, you know, k- kettlebell type squats. There's a lot of variations there. The big question you have to ask yourself is Am I targeting the front of my legs? Am I targeting my glutes? My butt muscles, am I targeting my hamstrings? Depending on how you squat, you can change which muscles get recruited to a higher percentage. So there's a lot to it. Um, In general, most people don't think like that. They're like, hey, I just want to work my legs out. I'm going to do a squat and I'm going to get everything all at once, which is true. You are going to recruit your quads, your hamstrings, your glutes, your back muscles, your core muscles, your calves are involved. So that's why. Squatting is a great exercise because it's a total body movement, uh, but it's important to understand that you know certain positions in a squat can cause potential issues if they're not done correctly, just like playing tennis. If you hit a tennis stroke with the wrong technique, you're going to get yourself in trouble over time. It may not happen on the first rep, but if you continually hit the ball with the wrong technique you are likely to hurt yourself. And it's the same thing in the weight room. So you've got to be smart about how you structure your your, your routines uh, and progress appropriately. The biggest thing is gradual progression. And we see that with too many people when they haven't worked out for a while, they get back in the gym, and then they start on a routine. And the first couple of days they feel great because they're not sore, they haven't done much. Uh, but the problem is they do too much the first few days and that's where we see, and I, I see, because a lot of people come to me p- potentially with issues. They, they you know, they they've got an injury or they've got a soreness that doesn't go away, and that's really important for that a- amateur tennis player, especially.
0: For sure, it's definitely uh, important to realize, uh, you know, you that you have to be biomechanically efficient, and also realize your limitations and, and take it slow, uh, you know, and um, one last question on the squat is, you know with the myth about going past parallel, uh, the absolute thought that it's it's dangerous. Yes, you know, I've also heard that partial squats could have you know put pressure on the knees, but is that also something where if you do it uh, technically correctly it's it's fine?
2: Yeah, I mean, depending on what you mean by partial squats, there's a lot of variations on partial squats. If you're doing quarter squats, uh, for example, which I work with a lot of track athletes and we'll do quarter squats sometimes for starts and acceleration training, that's not putting a lot of pressure on the knees as long as they're sitting back in their glutes. If you do those partial squats or quarter squats where your knees really come forward, And that potentially can put a little extra strain on the knees and it's not something that's recommended. But, again, it comes down to the technical proficiency and making sure we're recruiting the big muscles. Our biggest thing with all movements is we really don't want the joint to be stressed significantly. We want the muscles to be loaded, uh, but we want to limit the stress on the joints in all movements. That's our objective. Um, So if we structure the exercises to – focus on the muscles rather than putting the pressure points on the joints we're going to have more success in muscle fiber recruitment which is our goal typically in strength training we want to get protein synthesis we want to get adaptation to occur Um, typically we want muscle to grow uh, not necessarily get you know big and bulky but we want positive adaptation to occur so that's why you see a lot of players that work out a lot they don't necessarily get a lot bigger because they've structured their training to not necessarily increase their size of muscle, their hypertrophy, but what they are doing is they're developing muscular endurance and they're developing power, uh, and they're developing general strength as well. But they're just not trying to increase size of muscle as an objective. And then other athletes do want to do that. You know, There's a lot of people, especially as you age, you want to increase muscle mass because there's a natural aging effect that actually decreases muscle mass over time. Uh, Many of the listeners have heard of sarcopenia. Sarcopenia depends where you're from. um, And that's basically muscle loss over time. And that can be reversed if you do structured strength training. So really, really important concept.
0: Perfect, Mark. And so, um, you know, you go into detail about the different – uh, effects of different rep ranges and number of sets uh, that you choose to incorporate in your routine. but can you give us just a, you know an overview of in general what rep range or number of sets people should be using and, and the impact of that on, on the, their results?
2: Great, great question because sets and reps are, and total load are three things you really need to understand. Because you'll hear a lot of the time, a starter beginner program, many times people will be given three sets of 10 of an exercise, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's arbitrary to a certain extent because the 10, the 10 reps are only relevant if we know what the load is. So let's say you're lifting a dumbbell and, you know, three sets of 10 with 20 pounds is one thing, three sets of 10 with 50 pounds is something completely different. Uh, But it all needs to be related to what your sort of maximum capabilities are. Because if you do three sets of 10 with 20 pounds, but you could actually do three sets of 15 before you failed uh, on that movement, that's not really going all the way to your 10 repetition maximum. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, you may be able to do 30 pounds with 10 reps as well but that would be the max you could do. You couldn't do any more because, you, you know, you would fatigue out. So you have to be really smart when you're talking rep ranges because that's the same rep range. Three times 10 with 20 pounds is one thing. Three times 10 with 30 pounds uh, to failure, so to speak, 10 rep failure, um, is something very different. So you really need to make sure that when you're analyzing your sets and reps, that we're talking about going very close to failure. It doesn't have to be exactly failure, meaning that you couldn't do one more rep, but it's going to be pretty close. So that's really important because that's what most of the literature is based on when we're talking about rep ranges. So to give review for the folks, when we're talking about developing sort of absolute strength, meaning how strong can we be, you want to do less total reps um, and heavier weight. So usually that's less than six repetitions um, with as heavy a weight as you can lift safely. Then we get into this sort of hybrid range of things that occur between about six and 12 or so, uh, and that's where hypertrophy can occur, uh, and and that's also where some good strength occurs, and that's why you see a lot of the programs have rep ranges between eight and 12. Uh, So that's where we see a lot of people start with. Uh, And then when we get higher than that, say 12 and over, sometimes 15 and over, that's where we get a lot of this muscular endurance work that we are focused on. So those are the three broad areas. Then we have another area called power, which is really what the optimization for a tennis athlete is the goal of a lot of strength training. We want to turn or utilize our strength for power production. Power transfers our strength and our speed together. So we can actually utilize whatever strength we have as fast as possible, which helps us generate more pace on our forehand and backhand, help us hit our serves harder, all those factors that I think are pretty important for most people. So power requires us to work at a less total percentage of our maximum load, somewhere between 30 and 60% generally for most people, uh, and that's in a lower rep range. So that's usually less than five repetitions. Uh, but it's not as heavy a weight. So that's where a lot of people misunderstand sometimes. When we're trying to get strength, we want to be heavy and low reps. When we're looking for power, we want to be lighter, move it faster with low reps.
0: That's fantastic, Mark. And, um, uh, you know what? What you're talking about with the different rep ranges, sets, load, and you know even even speed with the power workouts, um, directly feeds into something that I l- first learned in uh, college in my tennis program at UMBC with their strength trainer, which is periodization. Uh, which you devote uh, a whole chapter to as well in the book, uh, which I really appreciate. And uh, you know, can you talk about you know, first, what periodization is and how we can use it to maximize our training and performance for, uh, for tennis?
2: Sure. Yeah, no, no, great point. And periodization is simply a form of planning. It's planning objectively to try to increase and also decrease loads appropriately throughout a period of time um, to optimize your training and then be prepared for your appropriate competitions. So you want to play, most tennis players, the reason a lot of the time they train is so they can compete at a higher level. So you need to structure your training with heavier weeks, lighter weeks, higher volume weeks, lower volume weeks, and doing that in a scientifically based way that you can optimize your training, not get injured either, which is a big benefit of periodized training because we can't week after week do more and more and more. At some point you break down. For some players, that may be week two or three of a program. Other players, it may be week six or eight of a program. But at some point, if you keep increasing the workload uh, and increasing the intensity, you are going to break down. And a structured periodized program is designed to avoid that. You monitor the workloads, you monitor the rest, and you then pull back on the training based on what the numbers are telling you objectively. So it's very objective if it's done correctly. You see where the players are at, you progress them based on a plan, but then you monitor and track them on a daily basis. So when you get a number or two that show you that, hey, they're starting to fatigue at this point, we're starting to see signs of fatigue, and there's a lot of different ways to monitor that, Um, then you want to start backing off and you want to reduce volume, reduce intensity, let them recover a little bit, for two, three, four days, maybe even an entire week, depending on how bad it is, Uh, and then you start ramping up the training again. The other option, if you don't do that, is the body naturally will shut itself down. It'll get injured, it'll get burnt out, it'll get sick, and that's the worst way to, to really structure your training. Train, 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 get sick or injured, stop, and then do it again, and that's what most people do. They train, 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 get sick or injured, then they take time off, And then they start it all up again. Periodized training is really designed to appropriately ramp up our training with structured download or unload weeks throughout the year so that that doesn't happen and that we can continually progress better and better training, more volume if needed, uh, and appropriate progressions with recovery.
0: Uh, Fantastic stuff, Mark. And so, you know, in general... Um, you know, when we consider the different uh, phases and uh, I suppose uh, types of training, um, I mean, I would surmise that we would, in the order we would we would approach this, is we would first do strength and then we would do power. And I'm wondering where, you know. Aerobic and anaerobic training fits in so could you give us maybe a a general progression? Let's say if I was or our audience was preparing for a big tournament in in four months uh, You know what we would train first and so in terms of strength and power and such
2: Yeah, no great great question and there's really two avenues you can approach the progressive training like that for if you've got a few months out one is called a traditional or block periodized model which is uh, you do training blocks on a specific focus. You may spend two or three weeks on strength, two or three weeks on hypertrophy, two or three weeks on muscular endurance, two or three weeks on power leading into an event. So you really emphasize one specific component for an extended period of time. This is a great way to train and develop those areas, no doubt about it. Uh, And with a lot of athletes that have a traditional season where they have a full uh, off-season, a full pre-season, that's how I train them. You know, football players, basketball players, different sports like that that have six months, some of them, to really train physically without competition. Uh, And that allows you to do that. In many tennis players, they don't have that luxury necessarily because they're playing once a month. They're playing every two weeks. A pro tennis player uh, may play Three weeks on, they may take two weeks off, three weeks on, and that's their entire year. So for those individuals that are a year round sport that are competing year round, uh, we use a tennis specific periodized model that, you know, I, that, that I personally use. It's a development over the last sort of decade and a half, and it's a form of non traditional periodization, meaning that we do everything every week. We have a strength day, we have a hypertrophy-focused day, we have a muscular endurance day, we have a power day, uh, and what we're doing there is we're working everything each week, and the way we periodize it is we increase or decrease the volume and intensity uh, in a structured way leading into our major tournaments. So certain events where we know aren't as important as others. If someone's playing for a national championship, for example, that's a priority. So those weeks we want to peak for, whereas if they're playing a local event in their hometown just for match practice, they're going to train through that tournament somewhat. They're going to maintain their physical training regimen. They're going to work through their periodized plan uh, so that they can really peak for some of the more important events. So those are the sort of two broad models that you can utilize uh, and you know, both have their benefits. Both also have some limitations just based on how you structure them and what your scheduling limitations are. But, again, the objective is to build the foundation, so making sure you have good stability, good flexibility, and good general strength as your base, and then you put things on top of that. You put your hypertrophy on top of that. You put your power on top of that. You put your speed movements on top of that. If you do speed and power first without having a strength base you're going to really limit your development and you could potentially injure yourself as well because power movements are very high velocity and if your body's not adapted to the right type of training we don't want to go straight into power movements on day one without a good base of
1: support there.
0: Thanks so much for that, Mark. That's uh, just super helpful and it's going to help a lot of people in our audience uh, train effectively uh, with periodization. Um, so one question that I have from Grace, who plays ITFs, uh, is what are the best strengthening exercises for the serve?
2: Yeah, really, really important question. And you know, I do a lot of work on the serve. Um, we do a serve-specific screening tool uh, that we utilize with our athletes to figure out where their weak points are, specifically related to the serve, uh, and then put them on uh, structured training programs to improve that. And, you know, in general, the big areas that athletes need to focus on are, you know, the hip range of motion. Most people don't think of the serve as a hip range of motion exercise, but that's really where a lot of the power source is. So they have to have good hip stability and hip range of motion. And then the second big area is their back leg strength. So most people don't have great strength or power off their back leg. If you're a right-handed tennis player, that would be your right leg. Uh, And that's an area of focus. Uh, So we still want to focus on the upper body. We know how important the shoulder is, and we do a lot of work in the shoulder as well. But step one is we need to make sure that our lower limb uh, and our hip uh, is really doing its job. Because if it's not doing its job, then the arm and the upper body has to take over and do more work than it's really designed to do. And that's where we see a lot of the upper arm issues. A lot of the upper arm issues, whether it's shoulder, elbow, even wrist, uh, a lot of the time is a result of poor hip stability, poor core strength, and, and poor lower leg strength. So we really try to make sure that we focus on the lower body first. Uh, before we overemphasize the work we do on the upper body, we still do work on the upper body because it is very, very important. But usually, that's not the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem, in nearly all cases, stems from the lower body.
0: I really appreciate you, uh, you know, emphasizing, uh, you know, the lower body because a lot of people when they uh, set out to train for uh to make themselves uh, better servers they concentrate on tricep exercises and such where they're not really even thinking how much the hip and lower body contribute to the kinetic chain and ultimately the uh a better serve you had a uh, or you authored a, a fantastic article that I saw in PubMed called uh, an eight stage model for evaluating the tennis serve And I was wondering if you could just kind of, you know, just talk about uh, that article briefly. And then in general, uh, just the importance of the kinetic chain.
2: Yeah, no, most definitely. I mean, this all came about been studying the serve in pretty uh, extensive detail for nearly two decades. Uh, And a lot of the work that was done in baseball hadn't been done in tennis. So we kind of wanted to analyze the serve in a biomechanically correct way. Using the uh, evidence-based literature that's out, that's been done in biomechanics labs all over the world, summarize that and then put it into a model that coaches can use, players can understand. Uh, and really, there's eight areas of the serve that have to be hit in the right way to have the most efficient serve possible. Uh, and all the players get into those eight positions, but the good servers getting into them correctly, the poor servers find a way to get into them but they're not in them correctly so it's really really important to make sure that we get an appropriate loading transfer of energy from the ground up through the lower body through the core and then out through the arm into the racket into the ball and you know simply put we've got to load in the opposite direction to where we want our energy to go you know if we think back to newton's laws we we think about for every action we have an equal and opposite reaction and if you think like that, it makes the whole serving concept a lot simpler to understand. We need to store our energy in the opposite direction to where we want to release it and we need to sink or summate our forces from the ground up through the body and out into the ball. And there's really one correct way to do that. There's a lot of ways to hit a tennis ball, there's a lot of ways to make contact, but Usually, if you don't sync all these areas correctly, certain parts are going to do more work than they should. And usually, they're smaller groups. The joints get stressed more in the upper body. Uh, we start getting core and lower back strains because our core and lower back aren't, are trying to do more than they should because the lower body hasn't done its job. And that's really what we are trying to avoid. So what we do is we screen the athlete specifically from a serving standpoint We understand their mechanics, uh, analyzing their serve, and then we do a full physical screen specifically designed for the serve to make sure that we know where their body's weak and where they're strong, where they're flexible, where they're not, specifically for the serve. And then based on that, they put on a training program, both a technical training program on court for serving and then also a physical training program to make sure that we correct the limitations that are causing them not to be able to get in the right positions and again it's a process that takes weeks sometimes months to correct but just like everything else if you understand the cause of the problem you can fix it a lot of the time people try to fix their technique without understanding the cause of the problem sometimes it's purely a technical issue that can be changed just by a cue and some practice most of the time there's a physical limitation that's is the reason why you can't do certain things on the tennis court we do the same thing for movement as well
0: i love that mark i mean again it's really important to know yourself and what's going on and and your limitations and that's another reason why i really love uh, complete complete conditioning for tennis uh, second edition because you devote a chapter that shows players how to actually uh perform fitness tests and such uh to figure out what areas they're deficient in whether it's uh power or balance and such and uh I mean I think that's that's really cool that you have that in the book um but you you also just mentioned um uh footwork of speed and agility and you know there's a lot of players who have inefficient biomechanics especially with their footwork and as you mentioned inefficient uh you know just they don't get to the ball in the uh, least amount of steps so what advice would you give a player who knows that they have uh inefficient footwork uh, on, on how they should approach correcting these deficiencies
2: yeah very very important area because the footwork piece is quite misunderstood sometimes uh, a lot of people think that taking a lot of little steps on a tennis court is the best way to move and it's, and it's definitely not uh, it's actually one of the it's a slower way to move on a court we want to be in the air more than we, than we're on the ground so what that means is we want to take less total steps to go from a to b the problem is we want to do that as quickly as possible so we have to have the right amount of power to generate into the ground and out So if you think about uh, Usain Bolt, for example, at the Olympics, the reason he wins pretty much everything is he takes less total steps than all his competition in the 100-meter dash. Mm. If the fastest way to move was to um, take a lot of little steps, we'd see everyone shuffling down the track, and we don't see that for a reason because the fastest way to move is to take big steps. What happens, though, is if we take big steps, sometimes we do need to take those small adjusting steps. But that only occurs if something's gone wrong in your movement, meaning that you haven't timed it right, you've overran the ball, you've misread the ball that's coming to you. So great movers always look like they're in the right position. And it's not because they're taking a lot of little steps. It's because they're timing their steps to get to the ball at the right time. So for individuals that really struggle with movement, You've got to ask yourself, am I using the most efficient footwork patterns possible from a technical standpoint? That's question number one. Then question number two is you've got to analyze your strength and power to make sure that you actually have the leg strength and the ability to produce the power to move quicker. So that's step number two. And then the third piece is do you have the flexibility and balance? And they go together in this standpoint. So this is uh, this concept of stability. Do you have the stability to be able to take these larger steps, land, absorb what you need to absorb, and then take another step without losing your balance or without taking too much extra time to regain your balance? So there's really three broad areas there that we need to focus on to make sure that you can correct some of those movement inefficiencies that you may have. But again, you've got to understand the cause because everyone has slightly different causes or limitations in movement. It's not always the same reason for you. Your your doubles partner may have a completely different issue as why they're limited. So that's why really understanding yourself and you know really having a good picture on what the causes and limitations are of your movement can really make a big difference in how you train.
0: That's fantastic advice, Mark. And so assuming I had to adjust this question a bit, but assuming that Uh, you know, the athlete has a a good, solid foundation for their footwork technique. What is one footwork drill that uh, you like to incorporate into your athlete's training that will help their speed and agility on the court?
2: Yeah, so from an on-court training standpoint, there's a lot of different drills that work really well. Uh, We do the T-line to S-line drill, which is basically – you know, the server, you know, we have the the S line, which is the uh, line in the, the, in the single sideline, and then it goes to the T. So it's just about a, a 13 and a half foot distance. Uh, so it's a service box width. Uh, and then all you do is you run, face, you know, facing the net, and you cross over, touch the lines, and you do that for 30 seconds. That's a great exercise, not only for your footwork, because you have to work on your change of direction. You have to work on accelerating and then decelerating quickly and then re-accelerating. And if you do that for 30 seconds, that's about as long a point as most people will play is 30 seconds. So you get a little, a, a little good speed endurance is what it's called. So you're still running at a fast speed, but you're starting to get a little tired those last 10 seconds. So you've got to maintain your speed. So that's one great exercise that we do. Uh, another one is the spider drill or a five ball pickup. This drill's been around, this has actually been a test for over 30 years. So this is a test that is utilized a lot and it's in our, it's in our testing chapter. Um, and it's really five balls positioned on the corners. So on the singles line and the baseline, on the singles line and the service line, uh, on, the, on the service line and the T line. Uh, then we And then you do the same on the other side. And you have five balls. You have to pick those up and put them back on the T, uh, on the baseline T, and you do that as fast as you can. So that really incorporates a lot of different movements uh, in the distances that we see on a tennis court. So those are two great exercises that can be incorporated. There are dozens, actually hundreds of others that I utilize with players. Uh, some add resistance. Some require shorter distances. Some require longer distances. But it's really, really important to focus on your technique, understand your angles going in and out of corners, because that's really, really important. That's where you make up your time is when you go into a shot and you decelerate and then you have to immediately reaccelerate. accelerate uh, And that's where the great movers do so well. It's not how fast you start. It's how well you stop and how well you restart. It's really the art of good movement.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for that, Mark. And, um, you know, there's a ton of footwork drills, among other exercises that are all in Mark's book, which I will uh, certainly link to in the show notes at tennisfiles.com slash 33. Um, so we had Alistair McCall on the show, another, uh, you know, well respected, um, trainer and fitness expert, uh, who just has fantastic, fantastic knowledge of the game. And he mentioned that, um, you know, how, how important flexibility is in general, especially uh, I think he attributed Novak's rise uh, specifically to flexibility, uh, at least a substantial part of it. And so what are three stretches that every tennis player should be incorporating into their stretch routine?
2: Yeah, no, stretching is very, very important. You have to understand that stretching by itself is, is vital But we have to get functional range of motion, meaning that we can utilize the new range of motion that we get. If you just continually stretch without strengthening that new range of motion, that can potentially lead lead to issues. So, you know, there are people that stretch a lot but don't strengthen in those new ranges of motion. So you have to be a little careful there. Uh, But in general, most tennis players are very stiff. Uh, Stretching is really, really important. Uh, A couple areas. First off is calves got to get those calves loosened up that's again we talked about that earlier really really important to do your calf stretches to loosen up that area um the next is our our hips our hips are typically very tight for tennis athletes so we want to make sure that we loosen up our hips uh and specifically you know our internal hip rotation Internal hip rotation in tennis players is very poor. So we want to make sure that we stretch our internal hip rotators. And there's some great stretches in the book for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the third area that you really want to, you know, focus on is the shoulder because that's where we see a lot of the challenges. And the biggest challenge in the shoulder is our internal range of motion in our shoulder. So, you know, the sleeper stretch is one stretch that is commonly recommended. There's a lot of others um, but if you take a look at the book, they'll really go into detail as to which stretches and how to uh, perform them because it's really, really important to make sure that the flexibility and the stability is developed so the athletes really uh, can do what we want them to do on court because having the strength is great, but if the flexibility is not there with it, you're limited in, in how much range you can use that strength in. So it all goes together. Being strong is great, but you have to have the flexibility. If you only have flexibility without strength, we have a problem as well. So you need to make sure you're training all these components appropriately.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. That reminds me of, I believe, your quote in, uh, I forget which magazine, it might have been ESPN, where you mentioned uh, Fetter you know he didn't have you know the top top um you know strength in the world or the the he wasn't the most for example flexible or powerful but if you uh take the average uh you know he basically was off the charts of these attributes yeah
2: no i mean the the all the top tennis players you know i really they're never going to be have the best vertical jump i've worked with football players and basketball players with 42 inch verticals no tennis player has a 42 inch vertical. You know, they're they're in the mid 20s, low 30s at best. But they they you know, 40 yard dash times aren't going to be four threes or four fours, which a lot of athletes I've worked with can run. They're going to be in the four sixes to four eight range probably. You know, they're not going to put up two twenty five on the bench press twenty five times or thirty times. So they're not going to win any of those traditional competitions. They're not going to win a marathon against one of the top marathon runners. However, they're going to do pretty well in all those competitions. And when you combine all those scores together, their average is going to be higher than a football player because they're not going to have the endurance. They're not going to have uh, some of the other attributes that tennis players have. The marathon runner is not going to have the strength or the power or the speed that a tennis player has. Uh, So, You know, tennis is one of the toughest sports in the world to play at a high level because of you need to be really good at all those physical variables, let alone the one on one mental competition and the stress and anxiety and pressure that one on one competition um, forces you to do. So you have to perform at a really high level under physical stress, but also significant mental and emotional stress in every match.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's uh, so true, and I just uh, really appreciate you mentioning how important uh, it is to just focus on several uh, aspects instead of, you know, some people just go and work out and focus on strength only, and you've got to put it all together. Mark, I mean, obviously, your your book, Complete Conditioning for Tennis, a second edition uh, which you co-authored with Todd Ellenbecker, who I've actually been uh, in communication with, and I really hope he comes on the show, and Paul uh, Rochard, who are two just uh, amazing fitness experts. Um, I just want to ask you, you know, there's a ton of information in the book, and how do you recommend we, we digest it all and, and put what we read into action?
2: Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned, um, you know, Doctors Wrote It and and Allen Beckett. Both Paul and Todd have been longtime mentors of mine. They actually wrote the first edition of this um, together. And uh, I was honored and humbled when they asked me to sort of, you know, take the lead on this uh, next edition. Um, And they're phenomenal individuals in the tennis space. Both of them have really you know, changed the field over the last two decades in the conditioning space and the strength and conditioning space for, for tennis. Um, but from a standpoint of how you should sort of analyze the book, the way I would suggest it would be to read through the whole book once, um, like you would any, any normal sort of um, fiction book, um, and then really then highlight chapters that you feel like you need to optimize. So, you know, we have chapters on movement, on strength training, on nutrition, on recovery, on injury prevention, on testing. And although all all the entire book's good for everyone, we all understand we don't have unlimited time to go through everything and do every exercise. So we've given some sample examples. We've given a lot of videos that a lot of people like. So that's definitely, you know, one of the best ways to utilize the resource want to also thank the United States Tennis Association because we worked very closely with them, and they're a co-author of the book as well. And, you know, the folks at uh, USTA Player Development, you've got Dr. Paul Labas, Dave Ramos, uh, Satoshi Ochi, uh, all contributed and really helped to, you know, get this over the finish line to be a really good resource for the industry and for, you know, tennis players at all levels.
0: Yeah, I mean... Again, I echo your sentiments uh, to, about uh, thanking the USCA. Uh, they've they've done a lot for um, you know for tennis and for this book and and in furthering a lot of people's enjoyment of the game, USCA leagues and such. Uh, just amazing job from them. Um, so this is the second edition of the book. Obviously, the first edition, uh, James Blake on it. This one has Isner. But what else has been changed or updated from the first edition?
2: yeah great question. i mean, we've we've completely redone this book. So there's some similar chapter names as the uh, previous edition, but every chapter' has been completely re- redone with the latest information. The previous book was more than ten years old. So there's been a lot of differences um in the research uh, in the best ways to train. So that has been redone in the chapters that have similar names to the previous edition. But we've also added a a series number of chapters as well. We've added a nutrition and hydration area, which is an area I spend a lot of time in. Uh, A whole chapter on recovery, which we know how important that is. Um, Our injury prevention and rehab chapter was really increased significantly, our testing chapter. Um, So we've really added a lot more detail Uh, All the photos, all the videos are brand new. So it's a completely different book um, just because it's got the same title. Uh, More than 70% of the information has been updated.
0: I appreciate that, Mark. And, uh, you know, just incredible job to to all of you on this book. If you had to pick one chapter that you were the most proud of, uh, that you think has the most value, I mean, this whole book has uh, incredible value, but which chapter would you pick? I mean, that's a tough question.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I think it comes down to the individual. Um, mm-hmm. You know, every individual has a different area of need. You know, I think the testing chapter is phenomenal because mm-hmm. there are so many different types of tests, and that allows you to assess yourself, all easy to do, all can be done on a tennis court. And again, the one thing about this book is we didn't. Ha- you don't have to go into a weight room to actually, you know, utilize this book. It allows you to do everything with bands pretty much um and and or dumbbells so you can do all the workouts without a lot of equipment which for a lot of people is really beneficial you can also go in and do a lot of um the work in a weight room but it was designed in a way that allows you to take this to the court you know really utilize you know limited resources to perform a lot of these exercises
0: fantastic mark Uh, well obviously a very important question is where can we get complete conditioning for tennis
2: sure so it's available um everywhere online amazon bookstores etc um, you can you know check it out also and and contact me through my website uh mark-kovacs.com mark-kovacs.com uh or you can also find it uh on the international tennis performance association website which is itpa-tennis.org uh also you know if you're interested follow on Twitter uh, you can follow me at mcovaxphd, PhD uh, and I can give you I do a lot of updates on there if you're interested in you know daily information a lot of research studies I put up out there it's a good easy way to communicate the latest research uh, upcoming events things that are going on so you know if you're on um, Twitter or Facebook you know feel free to follow and, and communicate through those mediums
0: Fantastic, Mark. I just want to ask you a question, uh, one fan question. We got a ton. One from JR Stryker. Uh, What is one misconception or myth that is common among players uh, looking to increase their fitness uh, to improve?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of misconceptions. One for I think a lot of people is um, the strength training aspect. A lot of players still haven't completely bought in um, to the benefits of strength training and pretty heavy strength training as well. Uh, a lot of the top pros have because, you know, they're competing against the best in the world. And although a lot of players may not look, you know, super imposing, some do, some don't, but they're all lifting pretty heavy weight compared to their body weight. So that's an area that really, you know, to get faster, um, to get more powerful, you need a strength base. Uh, And there's no way around that. There's no way that, you know, athletes that want to get faster, they have to get stronger. There's a reason that the fastest athletes in the world, wide receivers, running backs, you know, 100-meter sprinters, you know, most of their life is spent in a weight room lifting heavy weight. You know, it's really, really important to understand that. And that's one of those things where it's it's a pretty important area. If you want to develop your speed, your movement, your power, you know strength training and relatively heavy strength training needs to be incorporated. remember you need to have good technique you have to know how to do it correctly. that's why you want to work with a trained professional um but it is an important area of the development for your tennis fitness.
0: fantastic marius It's all about uh you know making the body adapt uh, and you can only do that through uh Pushing your body uh, gradually within reason and and tweaking uh, one of the many variables when you train. Mark, what are some other books, because you've written a ton, uh, and or articles uh, that you think we should check out um, that you've uh, authored?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's a lot of information. I've done another book with Paul Roda, which is called Tennis Anatomy, and uh, that's uh, another strength and conditioning type book for tennis. The beauty about that book is it's got a number of phenomenal um, drawings, actually, with all the muscles um, imposed on it. So you actually see the muscles that are working during strokes, but also during strength and conditioning exercises. So that's a great resource. Um, We've got a few other books, uh, Dynamic Stretching book, which is uh, for multiple sports. We've also got a Stretching Strap flexibility book, so I've done a lot in the flexibility space. Uh, We've got this Tennis Recovery book as well, Uh, so there's a lot of areas that are relevant to the tennis athlete uh, in those resources, but if you're looking for more information uh, I'd recommend you go go to my website and can there's a lot of information there and can direct you to other resources that are available for you as well.
0: uh fantastic, yeah, I really recommend that uh, for our audience to just immerse themselves in uh you know just all the wonderful uh, resources and materials that uh, Mark and um, other respected fitness experts have created for you uh much of what you know is free online as well. Uh, as a book, which you can purchase um, just amazing stuff that will really help you uh, take your game to the next level. Hey, Mark, where can we find you um, either online, in person and on social media?
2: Yeah, no, no, definitely. So, you know, easiest way uh, to contact me, um, you know, you, if you're on Twitter or Facebook, it's mcovaxphd. Uh, or on Instagram, all three are the same, PhD. So M-K-O-V-A-C-S-P-H-D. Uh, or you can uh, check out the website, mark-covax, M-A-R-K-covax.com. Those are the two easiest ways to reach me. Uh, you know, if you've got questions, feel free to reach out through that website uh or on Twitter or Facebook. So they uh, look forward to you know hearing from folks and you know catching up with other tennis players around the country and around the world.
0: Fantastic, yes. Everyone please comment uh, you know, on the at tennisfiles.com slash thirty three uh you know, just on any thoughts you have about uh, Mark's uh, advice and you know, what's what works for you and what doesn't and such, I'm sure it'll pretty much all work. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Mark, we love to end the show by asking uh, our esteemed guests uh, this question, which is, what is one tip that you can give our audience uh, uh, that is the key in your mind to help improving, uh, that will help improve their tennis game?
2: Yeah, the biggest is focus on the details, meaning focus on your technique, focus on doing the little things correctly, and that's the biggest thing that will make the, the biggest amount of impact. The drills, the exercises, you got to pick the right ones, but especially even more important is focusing on the technique and doing it the right way. Way too often, people are doing the right exercises. It's not about the wrong exercise. It's about doing the right exercise the wrong way. So make sure you emphasize overemphasize learn from the right people who can teach you the right ways to do what you're supposed to do. As we know there's a lot of information out there, much of it is incorrect, much of it is, isn't evidence-based. You know, make sure you're doing things the correct way. Find out the find the best resources, utilize the experts and make sure you're really getting your information from quality sources.
0: Mark uh, I can't thank you enough it was uh, just amazing to speak to you and to hear all the knowledge that you've accumulated and uh, over the years and uh, you know thanks for uh, positively affecting the uh, performance and lives of so many athletes uh, from all all sports and I really cannot um, endorse complete conditioning for tennis uh, the second edition enough uh, I've been reading this book and i'm really amazed by uh just the amount of depth and uh the personalization that uh is afforded uh, everybody who reads this book in terms of finding out what they need to do through reading uh this book to uh you know take their fitness and their game to the next level uh there's so many videos in here and um explanations and it's just incredible uh, i think you you know you'd be making a mistake to be honest if you didn't pick up this book Uh just fantastic and uh, Mark, thanks for being uh, just a wonderful guest and for being so responsive, uh, you know, on Twitter messaging me back uh, when I, I asked, uh, I was praying that you'd come on the show and you did. And I uh, just want to thank you for everything.
2: Yeah, no problem at all. Keep up the great work and, you know, keep spreading, you know, good information, which you, you do and, you know, look forward to following the podcast in the future as well. So, you know, yeah, I appreciate all the opportunities to, you know, share good quality information.
0: Thank you so much, Mark. You take care. All the best to you. No problem. Thank you so much. I hope you guys got a ton of value from my interview with Dr. Mark Kovacs. Uh, no, I certainly did uh, just some amazing stuff from a very highly accomplished uh, fitness expert. If you guys are interested in getting Mark's uh, book that he co-authored with uh, Paul Rotert and Todd Ellenbecker, uh, you can get it at com slash fitness book. Uh, just note, that's an affiliate link. So if you were to click to uh, on that link and per- make a purchase, then uh, I would make a small commission. Um, always got to disclose that uh, for you guys. Um, and you can also find all the show notes uh, on this episode, including a time-stamped question. So for every question that I asked Mark, I have uh, the exact time where... Uh, the question was answered by Mark. So let me know what you think of that. Uh, Again, tennisfiles.com slash 33 uh, to find uh, the show notes and all the links that I mentioned in the show. I really would appreciate it if you guys would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast. I'd love to have all you guys as, as subscribers Uh, And the advantage with that is that as soon as I publish an episode, you will receive um, that episode. It will be downloaded immediately onto your favorite podcast app uh, that you use to listen to the show. If you're not subscribed, then you'll have to search for the show and then click on each individual show to listen to it. And uh, it also does not uh, actually populate in the podcast apps uh, if you're not a subscriber until uh, many hours after I actually publish it. So it's another reason to be a subscriber. Appreciate it. And I always like to end the show with a quote. And today's quote is by John F. Kennedy uh, relating to fitness, of course. Uh, this being a an amazing fitness episode uh, for you guys. And John F. Kennedy uh, said, Physical fitness is not only one of the most important keys to a healthy body, It is the basis of a dynamic and creative intellectual activity. Take your fitness to the next level, and I promise you that you will take your tennis game and your life to the next level as well. Thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, Subscribe to the show, and I can't wait to see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast, uh, where I will be interviewing Brian Boland on the show the head coach of the University of Virginia. Uh, Definitely another very exciting and should be a great episode. Uh, National champs for the men's team that he coaches. All right, thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care, guys.
1: Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.